we have been going through chapter 13 of the book of Acts. <clears throat> and we notice in verse 22, when Paul, in the midst of his sermon, speaks of King David, repeating the words, <clears throat> excuse me again, ascribed to him, a man after the Lord's own heart. And some have a hard time with that title in light of David's failures. But that's how we think as people. We always point to the failures and miss the many, 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 many good things. Uh, Psalms have, there are 150 of the Psalms. More than half of them were written by David. And as they were written they, by him, they, he was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so there's much of, of David's life that had a bend toward the glory of God and the desire to follow him. But as I thought on, on this mention of David, I also thought back to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and David's encounter with Goliath. And it prompted me to check on how chapter 17 with this encounter of David and Goliath had been preached especially in the modern era, in the 20th century, late 20th century into the 21st century. And I found titles, titles that I found were quite interesting. They went like this, felling the giants, in your life. Take out some giants in 24. How to have the faith of a giant. How you conquer by faith. Live like a king in victory. That's how to deal with the problems in your lives. David's Psychological battle with Goliath. How to be bold and courageous in your service to God. Facing your giants. Five stones for defeating the giants in your life. How to be a giant killer. does sound humorous, but it's really kind of sad. Because this is how many approach the Old Testament. A moralistic approach. We're used to that kind of thing because when we, we're, we're brought up with the idea, when we are told a story, we say, well, now the moral of the story is this. And we, we grew up with Aesop's fables, and of course all the fables had a a moral to them. But Peter tells us when regard to the gospel, when it comes to the word of God, we did not follow cleverly devised fables. But some look at the Old Testament narratives and they look for life's teachings, life's principles. Now, while that's not absolutely wrong... It puts something 
in there for which the word was not designed. It's not the thing to be most desired coming out of the pages of Scripture. But as soon as we get into something like 1 Samuel 17, here come all the how-to sermons. How to be a David. How to be a, a Gideon. How to be a Joshua. Look at those traits and, and model them. But the question is, how are we to read the Bible? It is funny how so many Protestants act like Jesuit Catholics when they read the Scripture. The Jesuits taught, put yourself in the Scripture. Put yourself in, make it so you are, that you can hear the sounds and smell the smells and make it so you're right there in the narrative. Is that really what we're supposed to do? But is the Bible a book about me? Oh, yeah. I am in there just like everyone else. But it's not about us. It's not about us. Jesus never said the word is about you. But he did say the word is about him. Jesus makes clear it's about him. We remember in his encounter with, encounter with the Jewish leadership, you search the scriptures for in them you think you'll find eternal life. In them you'll have eternal life. But they are they which testify of me, as he said in John 5, 39. And in Luke 24 and verse 27, as he walked with the Cleopas and the other man on the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, verse 27, we read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, things concerning himself. All the scriptures. And it's not like they had reference editions of the New Testament. And when we think of Every single New Testament writer, they are all drawn to the Old Testament to prove the reality, the person, and the work of Christ. It would then make great sense if we read the Bible according to the design of the author. If Jesus said the scriptures testify of him, then we should look for him. Not force his appearance. You don't have to. And here we come to this passage, this chapter in, in 1 Samuel cha chapter 17. We're going to see Jesus in many ways. You see, there were many in the Old Testament that were a type of Christ, a prefigurement of Christ. Moses is a prime example. Abraham would be a prime example. And every deliverer, every good king, every true prophet was in some degree a prefigurement or precursor to Christ. So look, we look at David. David was perhaps Israel's best king. 
greatest king. You notice when people talk, even today, the Jews will say they want to return to the days of David. No one says we want to return to Ahaz or, or, or to Hezekiah even. But David is still the one. And even in the New Testament, early New Testament times, we find that people with afflictions, when Jesus passed by, they didn't say, son of Solomon. They said, son of David, have mercy on me. Because all the promises, the eternal promises, were around David. And they say, well, yeah, David was a sinner. That's the thing that goes on right from the beginning. The first fall of man, when we come to uh, after, after the fall and the children start to be born, Cain is born. And after the promise of the seed of the woman, what does Eve say? I have gotten a man from God. What does that mean? She thinks Cain is the answer to the prophecy that they were given in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And we go through the whole Old Testament. They're all looking for this Savior, this Messiah, everywhere you look. And so when people look to David, and they said, well, maybe he's it. And on and on, every single king, they thought, well, maybe it. But each one, instead of being the Savior, instead of being the Messiah, all needed a Savior themselves. And too often, people look at the life of someone like David and try to see themselves. And the only time that you'll see yourself in the life of David is when he sinned. Because David was a king who delivered a nation from its enemies. David was a writer who wrote many Holy Spirit-inspired psalms. When was the last time you delivered a nation? When was the last time you wrote songs that the church would sing for over 3,000 years? More than anything, like us, no, he was more a prefiguring of Christ. And in this passage, there is much about the work of Christ and nothing about throwing rocks at our problems. I love people who say, you got to read the Bible literally. Okay, fine. you got a problem. There's a bill coming that you don't think you can pay. Well, get a smooth stone out of the river and throw it at Throw it at the bill. Boom. You win. We have to understand that the Bible is not purely literal all the time. And if we try to force a little rending, rendering out of it, it gets pretty silly. So let's look first at the enemy. Philistines, but more directly for this moment in time, Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17 and verse 4, and a champion 
went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield bearer went before him. His height was reckoned to be, depending on how some reckon cupids, cupids at that point, he could have been as tall as 11 feet. He had uh, several scholarship offerings from some ACC schools. He was a giant. Descended from those mentioned in Numbers chapter 13. Remember when Moses sent out the three men to spy out the land and they came back and they said, boy, there's some, in Numbers 13 verses 32 and 33, there's some giants in that land. And when we move on to Joshua chapter 11 and verses 21 to 22, we read that Joshua and his armies drove those giants out to what land? To Gath. So this is where Goliath comes from. We're told in verses 5 through 6 that he's armored from head to toe and with weapons, a javelin, a spear, shield, and as we'll see, a sword. But keep in mind what he has on his head. He has a bronze helmet. Not a bronze baseball cap but a helmet that covers his head. This will be something that we'll be revisiting really quickly. He is a figure of Satan. And we see very quickly, in verse 8, Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. All who sin are slaves of sin. And therefore, all whose sins are not covered by Christ are in Satan's camp, under Satan's leadership. The Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So he's a figure of Satan. Lies and venom come out of his mouth. And here there are two peoples, those of Goliath, the Philistines. These are people that are not in covenant with God. 
and the Israelites who are in covenant with God. And in verses 8 and 9, I could not probably read anywhere near like he spoke, but there's a roar in what he says. And what are we told of Satan? He goes around to and fro like a lion, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he goes about as a roaring lion. But also we know something here too, don't we? Because we've read ahead. We're already informed that he, he is a defeated enemy. Now the army of Saul is pictured in verse 11. Not very comforting. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed and afraid. What were they afraid of? To go before Goliath with certain death. So they huddle, not so much in fear of Goliath, that's the instrument, but the thing behind Goliath is death. They are greatly afraid of death. Meanwhile, we've got David. He's keeping his father's sheep. Where? In the fields of Bethlehem. What do we know about his time as a shepherd? Well, we'll let David do the talking. In verse 34, David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it. And I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the enemy, the armies of the living God. David was a shepherd. And he said, I would rescue my father's sheep, the sheep that his father gave to him. He would even take them out of the mouth of the predator. This is a prefigurement then of the great shepherd, the one who even will lay down his life. In verse 17, what do we see? Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain, these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So he sent. What do we see? What's the picture of David now? The first one we see, he's talking about Dealing with his father's sheep. What's the second picture? Doing what his father had sent him to do. He is about his father's business. When Jesus, as a young boy, was missing for 
After three days, they finally figured out he was missing. That's another story in and of itself. That shows you he wasn't much trouble at all, no trouble at all, because it's the ones that are causing trouble you're always looking at. Like, where, where And Mary says to him, what are you doing? He says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? He was at the temple all the time. To have this parallel again of being about his father's business. Now, you know something that's very interesting. Jesse had eight sons, three of which are with Saul. Five, then, are back there on the ranch with, with Jesse, their father. But what does he do? He sends the youngest one. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, the quotation of the Old Testament, giving these as the words of Christ, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And certainly David complies quickly and comes to the aid of his brothers. In verse 24, as he comes to the camp and sees the things that are going on, and when all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that is Goliath, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And David asked a question. So the men of Israel said, have you not seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in all Israel. So she's the man running from, from Goliath. But you notice whoever defeats Goliath will have a bride. Another interesting combination there. In verse 26, he puts... Well, he puts Goliath in his proper place. And David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, this, this statement doesn't go over well. In verse 28, now, Eliab his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So he comes to his brothers, and what do they do? They insult him. Doesn't that echo of John chapter 1 and verse 11? He came to his own, and his own received him not. David's reply, what have I done? The same as Jesus in John 18 and verse 3, why smiteth me? And then David says, is there not a cause is there not a cause for him to be there? Well, sure there was. The father sent him. The honor 
of Israel required it. And the glory of God necessitated it. So he is brought to Saul. Saul sees him. Now, if we don't read this closely, we'll think that Saul took his armor off and gave it to David. That's not how it worked. Because Saul's basically a coward himself. So he's not going to take off his armor, but he does have a store of armor. It's not like he only has one shield and, and you know, one coat of armor or anything like that. He has a spare. So he, he tries them on David. David sees there's no way of going forth with it. And instead, he chooses five smooth stones from a brook. He puts them in what? His shepherd's bag. And he went out with what God provides rather than what man provides. Because God gives the foolish things of this world to condemn the wise and the small things of this world to condemn the big. But also, too, Saul cannot say, my armor, my armor saved him. The salvation is going to come and it will have nothing to do with anybody else but that one man. Now we come to verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and a sling was in his hand. I hope you understand it's not the Dennis the Menace kind of slingshot with the Y-shaped. It's a sling that you, you put the rock in this pouch and you swung it around and you let it go. And it was quite a weapon to have and those who could use the sling very well were, were welcomed in every army he's got the sling in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him so the one who carried Goliath's shield and when the Philistine looked about and saw David he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David had his, his shepherd's stick. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you 
and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp to the Philistines, to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So what happens next? I think we all know. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the bag, took out a stone, and he slung it. And it struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell over on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Five smooth stones. What did we say before about how Goliath was dressed? He had a bronze helmet. Now, as he's getting out to battle, he doesn't take his helmet off, hold it like this, and start pointing his finger at David. And some say, well, you know, he probably just lifted the visor so he could see better. See, everybody wants to discount this great work. The stone that David threw from the sling went through the bronze helmet into the forehead of Goliath. Genesis 3, verse 15. The seed of the serpent. He will bruise your heel, but you, you will crush his head. You see the parallel, don't you? In verse 52, there's a great shouting for joy. Now the men of Israel, the men of Judah, Israel and Judah, arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. They were rejoicing. This was a great time. He had relieved them from their great fear of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2 and verse 13, as again, there's a quotation from the Old Testament, but again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given to me. And inasmuch 
Then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime in subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The seed, the faithful seed, the believing seed. Well, let's put it all together. So many parallels, but here's a picture of our Savior. A shepherd. A shepherd and, and one of not very impressive appearance. Isaiah says of him, of Christ, Isaiah 53, verse 2, he has no form or comeliness, no beauty. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I think when I, I read that of, of John the Baptist, and here comes Christ, and he's walking towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And everybody's looking around trying to figure out who it is. Because there's nothing on Jesus or of Jesus that you would say, yes, this is our conquering hero. There's no big S on the front of his, his, his coat. He doesn't have red, white, and blue draped over him. And so perhaps some who were there that day and heard John the Baptist say that, which one? He probably wasn't the only one walking around at that time. And isn't that one of the things that people get? How can one man, one man take away the sins of people? How can one man die for their sins? How can he rise again from the dead? When, when I was in high school, there was somewhat of a blasphemous musical that was out, Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was part of one of my assignments at school to go see this. And I remember, because the song became popular on the radio as well, they had Mary Magdalene, and Yvonne Elliman, Elliman would sing the, the, the song that would be popular. But I don't know how to love him, what to do, how to move him. And then she said, He's a man. He's just a man. And I've had so many men before in so many ways. He's just one more. Well, Mary Magdalene wasn't that stupid. She knew who Christ was. But that's the common concept. If you go to so many places and you ask, what about Jesus? Well, he's a good man. Just a man. If you looked at David, you say, oh, it's just a shepherd boy. What can he do? And people look at Jesus and say, he's just a man. 
This would be the one who would leave his flock to go after the lost sheep, as Jesus would speak of the 99 and go after the one. He would defend his flock from evil. One who would defeat the roaring lion, the giant, which encompassed the idea of evil and death. One who would free his people. One who would have a bride. But even more so, one who would stand alone. You would know the protection of David if you were amongst the troops, <laughs> but not of Saul. Saul represents the civil authority, the secular authority. He's not going to be able to save you. But here's, here's David. Now, there are some who say, okay, well, you know, here's five things that you can get for your life here to be like David. But I think we have something here that's much better than any moralistic conclusion that anyone could come up to. What did David finally end up doing? He took the sword, the sword of Goliath, and cut off Goliath's head with it. There would be no longer lies, no more roaring to come out of the mouth of that lion. The source of all lies were cut off. Jesus is the one who will cut off the head of evil, will silence all the enemies of God and his people. And on that day, if you paid attention to what he was saying, what David was saying, <clears throat> he took the place of a prophet. He said, this is what's going to happen. Before it happened, he told them what was going to happen. He took the place as a priest. He stood on behalf of the people before the great enemy and in the presence of God. And he was a king. You go back to chapter 16, he's already been anointed as a king. Well, what is Christ? What are the three offices that he fulfills for the church? Prophet, priest, and king. Causing you to see Christ in this episode is far more beneficial for your soul than any moralistic or uh, optimistic talk about how you can be a giant killer yourself and kill all those giants in your life. I said, well, Am I anywhere in this? If Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you're seeing your greatest interest. Christ is our greatest interest. And my friends, I don't ever advise that's a real good thing to look at these prefigurements and say, how, how, am I, how can I be like that? But instead to look and see how they brought Christ to us. You see, if you go through the whole Old Testament, what are you seeing? You see this very, very little, almost like a, a, a match struck in darkness 
with Genesis 3 and verse 15. But what happens? As you move along, you get into a candle. And as you get further and further along, the light gets brighter and brighter till the day star arises and we see the full picture of Christ. And we must see the Old Testament as a picture and performance of the redemptive history of God. If we don't, then we've missed the point. And we've missed our Savior. For Paul, John, James, Peter, all of them proclaimed the Christ of the Old Testament. May that Christ be your Lord, be your Savior. He didn't come, become Savior at the cross, became Savior before the foundation of the world. Let's stand together for prayer.